Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Jennifer Prosek, the founder and CEO of Prosec Partners, a leading international public relations and financial communications consultancy, and a popular past guest on the show. In our first conversation, we discussed branding an asset management firm and many of Jen's leadership nuggets of wisdom. That conversation follows on the feed. Our second conversation discusses the evolution of marketing and brand development in asset management and how the pandemic has accelerated trends already in place. We discuss business development in a virtual world, including building a digital profile, developing a presentation style, handling significant world events, 
differentiating from others, and nailing the narrative. We end by turning to lessons Jen learned on internal communication and leadership through the health crisis. Please enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Prosek. Jen, great to see you. Great to see you too, Ted. Well, it's actually been a little over two years since you were on the show. And one of the things you talked about then was this notion of this emerging market for marketing. And certainly we've heard this phrase that COVID's accelerated trends already in place. And I'd just love to start by your perception of what's happened over the last two years in this area of asset managers and marketing. I talked about the emerging market of marketing. It's still the emerging market of marketing, but I think we're in a different inning, if you want to talk in baseball terms. So there's just been a maturation, right? More firms and private equity alternatives, hedge funds, asset management are getting into what I would call sophisticated marketing and reputation management. And that's been accelerated by COVID too, because we all are now in a virtual world and fundraisers have to raise money and marketers have to sell product and brands and what they stand for and their digital profile are more important than ever. So in the beginning of the crisis, I worried that we would lose a lot of business just because crises cut budgets. But what happened was the opposite, right? Especially in areas like private equity, they doubled down on digital, they doubled down on video, they doubled down on audio, and they realized they really couldn't get the job done without a lot of these, call it marketing things. And even for us, I realized when we were a small firm and had not that much brand visibility, if we had hit this crisis, the phone wouldn't be, the inbounds wouldn't be coming on. But now that we're an established brand, which we've worked very hard on, we've eaten our own cooking, we've done what we do for our clients, the phone was still ringing and the inbox was still full of queries. And so that was actually a really interesting moment for me to say, wow, this marketing PR stuff really works. It's helped us in the crisis tremendously. How have you found this whole notion of business development virtually playing out? I would say, especially in the beginning of lockdown, it was everyone's number one vulnerability. Like, will I be able to meet anybody? And will I be able to generate a new relationship over Zoom or in this video world? And it's definitely been more challenging. I mean, think about how we all operate. We go to the Milken Conference. We go to Super Return. We go to raise money. We go to for brand visibility. We go to add people to our network and all of that stops overnight. So there was definitely fear and paralysis, but very quickly, the most entrepreneurial successful people pivoted and you had to pivot quickly into BD in a virtual world. And I actually wrote a whole piece called BD in a virtual world with a lot of different recommendations. So for instance, one of the things I counsel my clients is business development now is about giving gifts giving to receive, the gift of knowledge, the gift of an insight, the gift of a peer network. So if you invite people to a convening session to hear a speaker or to hear from you on an insight, you got to be gifting an insight, a peer network value. And that returns, you know, I always talk about the law of reciprocity. If you give a gift to someone, whether it is the gift of knowledge, the gift of insight, the gift of whatever, sometimes you get an opportunity back. And that's sometimes the best way to build any relationship, but certainly a new business relationship. So, and there's a lot of different gift giving you can use. So that's just one example that 
in any crisis, especially a health crisis, you also have to add a lot of empathy to everything you do. So that idea of let me give value, not waste someone's time. Let me not be tone deaf about what's going on in the world. So everything kind of changes a little bit in this world. How is that notion of giving gifts different in a virtual world compared to what you might have recommended before? It's similar, but different, meaning it's always worked. So if you asked me, how do you develop business, Jen? I give the gift of a peer network. That's my favorite thing to do. So I like to convene people who want to get to know each other. And those people usually, when they get to know each other, they say, gosh, who did this for me? Oh, Jen did this for me. And when there's opportunity, I get a shot. So that's kind of the same virtual world, physical world. However, there are things now we cannot do in the virtual world, like go to a conference and network and throw a party and whatever. So I think in a health crisis and an economic crisis, giving gifts is a more empathetic, appropriate thing to do than some of the other things we might do in the physical world. What are some of the other things you learned about how business development functions effectively in this virtual world? Well, we learned, for instance, and Ted, you're living the dream, audio has been really popular. If you look at the trends in podcasting, I don't need to tell you that people are consuming so much more audio. So one of the things we have done is develop some audio product where you can tell your story on audio. And instead of just sending a deck along, you can send your story on audio, which is much more interesting to listen to. When you think about it, would I rather look at your deck or would I rather hear from a founder about the way they started their firm, their strategy, what's been successful? So we've found that audio work really well. We've also found that video works really well and that people are happy to consume a video with a PM versus have a meeting with them, right? So all these things are not just critical for doing business, but I think are now going to be preferential when we go back to the physical world. So there will be permanent changes that are good, that save time and are more efficient. We'll probably be a year into this, so it's not all new, but I'm curious, like, what are some of the ways that your clients have been effective in this virtual world? One of them is, I wrote a piece called Private Equity Doubles Down on Digital. I think everyone realized when you're virtual, your digital profile is probably the most important thing you have. So how are you showing up on Google? How are you showing up on LinkedIn? Platforms like LinkedIn have seen enormous traffic and the level of executive has gone way up. So you find CEOs and founders, not just like linking on LinkedIn, but publishing content and people really absorbing it. LinkedIn, for instance, published a newsletter series where you can write your own newsletter and people opt into your content. I did this myself just to test it for my clients. And I have about 3,500 people who have opt into to my newsletter called Leadership in Volatile Times. And those people are so engaged with my content. They read the whole thing. They write to me about it. So I think it's been really interesting to see the trends on content and how people are absorbing it. So I think doubling down on digital, caring about your digital profile. I think a lot of firms never even paid attention to what was going on on page one in Google. Now that is like so enormously important, it always was, but it's like anybody who's going to talk to you is going to look at that for you personally and also your company, right? So 
We've seen massive investments in digital and accelerated adoption of digital and virtual and all this stuff. So for instance, annual meetings. I don't know if annual meetings will ever go back to physical. Now, some clients will say, we're always going to be a physical annual meeting, but I'd predict about 60% of them stay at least in a hybrid model because it's been so effective and so efficient. So we've noticed the digital thing has just exploded. And we've also noticed that sometimes it's the most senior people who have rediscovered life. They're not on an airplane every single week like I was. They have been in the same place for the first time in their entire lives. And their behaviors and the way they do business development is going to change, right? How do you get to those people when they're not spending that much time? So that's back to the audio and the video and, and all that stuff, getting to them with messaging and storytelling that is much more efficient. What are some of the ways that you've seen people trip up when they're trying to put out this digital content? Well, certainly everything has to be done. This is one example, right? How are presentations different on Zoom? They have to be a lot shorter, a lot pithier, and you need to engage the audience fast. Or people are going to turn off. You used to be able to get away with a really long deck and droning on and because they were in the room with you, right? Now you just lose it. So there are differences to the style and the tone. And I think the trip-ups that I've seen are just not understanding how much time you have to entertain someone on a Zoom call and engage them the quality of video, like, you know, all of those obvious things I think are trip ups. But the big, big trip up is being tone deaf. There is so much going on in the world operating in volatile times, right? Do you put something on social channels on the day that a mob storms the White House? No, you do not. So the trip ups are not just the quality and the style of the things you're doing, which is enormously important, but it's not paying attention or not knowing that in this volatile world, what you're doing in that particular moment may be very inappropriate. And I think that asset managers are still getting used to paying attention to those events in a new way, meaning, okay, this disaster is happening in the world. What should I do today or not do today in my marketing and business development? And that's been a really easy place to trip up. So I know you wrote another post about when to speak out and when not to. And this is you know, such an interesting topic. And a lot of these asset managers have big personal balance sheets. People look at them. And you could look at the parallel of the world of professional athletes. Like, What's the right time and way for a manager to express, whether it's political views or personal views, that may or may not be exactly the same as what a client wants to hear just about their products? Yes, I just posted to speak or not to speak. That's the question. I'll caveat this by saying every single situation is super custom to who the manager is, who the firm is, how on the radar screen they are. But in the, across the board recommendations, recognize that we are in a time where employees expect leadership to say something about major events. It doesn't have to be highly political message, but a message of comfort, a message of care, employees are acting and behaving in completely different ways. So if you want to keep your talent and have the best talent, recognizing that these outside events create anxiety and discomfort and safety issues and everything and addressing those things is pretty critical. Now, the problem is people ask me, well, if we start that slippery slope, we do it on every event. You don't do it on every event. You do it on the events that affect your employee base or the events that are so big in the world that 
they really deserve attention. Sometimes if you don't do that with your employees, they almost assume you don't care or assume that you're not thoughtful about these things. So that is one absolute is the internal audience. And after George Floyd died, I might have told you this, I spent the weekend emailing CEOs and founders just to say, hey, look, I know you're watching this and I know you care, but what you may not know is your employees might expect you to say something. Here's something I wrote to my firm, just to give you an example. And the big sea change is I think even two, three years ago, I would have gotten crickets. I would have gotten either no response or like maybe the virtual eye roll, but every single one said, I'm so glad you emailed me. This has been on my mind. I just haven't really known exactly what to do. Thank you for the sample. And so I think this is recognized as something we need to do. So that's the employee part. And then the other absolute is what I said about just making sure the organization knows to do things or not to do things around events. Like today's not a day for us to be reaching out pushing product, right? <laughs> so that's another absolute is like, think about the reputational damage that could be created in your organization by certain behaviors and make sure you give people guidance. We said around the storming of the Capitol, give clients guidance not to post on social channels today, unless they're pretty sure it's appropriate. So the other advice I give is, look, if you're a very on the radar screen political donor and the press covers that regularly, Look at what's happening. The press is calling out enablers now, right? So you might want to think of distancing yourself from that or the ramifications of not. So all of these are choices, but being very thoughtful around them. How do we show up in the world and will we be the center of attention on any of these issues? So that gets back to this broader issue of for business development professional, how to effectively sell in this period of time. So one is this question of their events going on and being empathetic to that. What have you learned about what's effective and what's ineffective in a virtual world? Well, this doesn't matter whether it's virtual, physical, but the most important thing is nailing your narrative. Do you have a compelling story that people are going to want to hear? So I always sort of back up to that. You got to start with the content. And we all know we've seen websites and pitch books and materials that all need work and don't nail the narrative. That doesn't matter. And then I think in this world, again, the real difference is how are people paying attention? When are they paying attention? How do they want to consume things? I think we're seeing virtual platforms pop up now for virtual fundraising. So there's innovation going on. So everyone knows the conference circuit's debt. So how do we do those speed dating conferences now? You see online versions of those happening. And we've had clients call me up saying, oh my gosh, thank you for getting me involved in that virtual fundraising conference. I actually developed business and I think I'm going to get some money, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. But what we've really learned is like, look, if you had a strong brand in the physical world, you're in good shape. You're known, you're well-known. You've got an investor base that respects you. You basically can call up on those people again and to re-up, right? It's the firms that aren't as well known. So they really need to make sure they nail their narrative. They're visible. They're building their brand in, in a positive way so that I always say we don't want to have the first meeting. We want to have the second meeting. You don't want to have the first meeting and spend the entire time explaining who you are, what you stand for, what you do. You want to have that second meeting in the first meeting, which is like getting right to the point of, of what your goal is. 
And again, the big difference now is just delivery channels, video, audio, virtual platforms, et cetera. But realizing too that this is gonna stick in a pretty significant way. So I think if an organization hasn't really built its muscle for this in this type of world, they should hurry up and do so because I think maybe we'll go back to half of the old behaviors, but not all of them. Are there tips that you've figured out relating to just the video interface and video calls and how to make those more or less effective? There's the 101 stuff that, to your point, we're a year into the prices. So if you haven't figured out the platform that works for video, the lighting, we actually gave away, talk about gifting, give to receive. We gave away Zoom presentation training in the beginning of the crisis to our clients to get them up to speed quickly and to make sure that they knew how to deliver on a video platform versus in a room because it really is different. And again, the differences are length and understanding that, you know, it's like anything else. It's like when we tell clients when you have a media interview, everything about the look and feel, what's in the background, how it's coming across is making an impression on your prospect. So it's really not more complicated than that. I'm really curious about this notion of length because sitting on the other side, I've seen it for years before a virtual world where someone could just not be paying attention to when that their audience has lost them. And it, sometimes it seems like that's actually harder to pick up on in video. Now, how do you coach people to understand when they're droning on for too long? That's a great question. Well, first of all, people use slides as crutches. So I always say, unless you are an unbelievable presenter that's so rock solid, you should minimize the slides because what happens typically is people want to hang on to their slides. Meaning like if I have 10 slides, I'm going through all 10 slides. They're not reading the room to see that guy's falling asleep, speed up to the most important slide. So I would say that, again, I cannot emphasize enough, like skinnying down the presentation deck is enormously important. You want to engage the person in a two-way conversation. So I wouldn't want to drone on to anyone for more than 15 minutes before I engage them. So, you know, maybe 15 minutes and then you say, what do you think about that? You've got to bring people in. And actually, I don't really understand this. I can tell when someone's zoning out even more on Zoom. Their eyeballs are going in different places. They're clearly checking their texts. If it's a room of 100 people, it's hard to do that. But if it's a small conversation, if you are with a prospect and you're trying to build a relationship, be in the meeting. It takes a genius to be multitasking on a Zoom and not be noticed for it. And there's nothing more insulting, I think, than I'm doing other things while I'm speaking to you. So we always say to our people, Zoom meetings are really important for relationship building and those one-on-ones and don't multitask. If you've got to multitask, do a call. And there's no reason you can't do a call. People feel like they have to do Zoom all day long. Like calls are really good. And sometimes calls are appropriate to be doing more than one thing, but like you can't really do that on Zoom. Have you found that there are instances where calls are more effective than Zoom these days or vice versa? I think it's respectful to ask who you're talking to, would you prefer a call? Because there are a lot of people now who are really Zoomed out and they don't want to Zoom with you. And as much as you might want to Zoom with them, it's almost creating a, a negative reaction in the beginning. So I always ask people, would you rather a call or a Zoom? 
And again, I think in a perfect world, if it's a prospecting meeting, you really want to have a Zoom with somebody. This is maybe stating the obvious, but there's an interesting humanity with being in lockdown, right? We're seeing each other's homes and bedrooms and living rooms and dogs are walking in and kids are walking in. I can't tell you how many times I've been with a CEO and his 13-year-old walks in and, and asks a question about their homeschooling, you know? And like that just creates a moment for me to say, hey, I have a 13-year-old too. We're doing the same thing. And all of a sudden you're sort of on a different plane. So I do think video is really great for building human relationships versus calls. However, I think calls are more appropriate when it, you don't need that one-on-one -on -one human touch. A lot of what you've described going into COVID, those firms that had an established brand were in better position than those that didn't. You get this feeling of haves and have-nots that feels like it's happening and accelerating within asset management, the large firms, the smaller firms. I'm curious, when you think about a new client that's coming in who doesn't have an established brand, how much do you think, if you looked two or three years out, their ability to grow and raise money came from the marketing strategy in comparison to what so many allocators think? It's really about performance and getting discovered for what they're doing. Performance is everything. If you don't have the performance, you can't market your way out of it. But what great brand and marketing does is it makes people curious about you. And again, it accelerates that first meeting into the second meeting. And it creates an efficiency so you could just get to goal faster. I wouldn't denounce what the CIO says about, you know, if the performance isn't there. I don't care what your story is. But if you have a good story or you've engaged someone with great content or they've heard about you or they're curious about you because your brand's starting to get visibility, how can that be a negative? Again, I've lived this. I'm the founder of a firm that went from zero reputation and brand to having a fairly significant one in the market. The difference is vast. The quality of our work really hasn't changed from when we were small to when we're large. But what has changed is our credibility and our reputation. So, And how much does that accelerate my goals? It's huge. I mean, in the old days, I had to knock on every door and beg for every piece of business and beg for the shot. Now, things land in my lap and people assume we're the right firm to work for. I mean, how amazing is that? The ability to accelerate success is just massive when you have credibility and visibility. I always say, I wish we did what we do for our clients earlier in my own firm because it really does work. Having said that, if the product and service isn't amazing, it's going to fall flat. And by the way, that's going to affect your brand and reputation too. So there's nothing you can do if the product is really subpar. But think about it. If the product's average and the reputation is amazing, you are sort of putting a little icing on that cake. And I've heard a lot of managers say behind other managers back that like their performance really isn't that great, but they've got that brand. They've got that story. They've got that halo. So I think that it's interesting. The investor side might not realize that is happening to them. <laughs> but on the fun side, I haven't really had to convince anyone lately that that's a factor. What goes into nailing the narrative in a world where so many of these products are not unique? Well, some of the nailing the narrative isn't always on the product. It's on the culture of the firm or the style. We've worked with Bridgewater for 
forever. And I think their culture of radical truth and transparency, whether you like it or not, is respected, admired, and intriguing to people. And I always remind people that they've been writing a daily piece called Daily Observations since the firm was born. They're the original thought leader. And before they even did a media interview, I think their investors said, God, I really need that daily observation. That is critical to my job. So they were kind of playing the thought leadership game before people used the words thought leadership. So there are lots of examples where culture distinguishes or thought leadership distinguishes, and it's not always the product. I mean, I think you can buy risk parity in other places when you think of the products. Like everybody's got products that overlap, but there's a belief or a believability about certain brands that they do it better, their process is better the way they get to the result is better. And then, of course, the performance has to prove it all out. So I think the nailing the narrative can be on the uniqueness of the product or service, but it can also be on the uniqueness of the culture, the firm, or the way they do it. And does it have to be something unique? No, I think it has to be uniquely packaged. So I'll give you an example. If you asked us about the culture of our firm, I would tell you we're an army of entrepreneurs. And in 2011, we published a book called The Army of Entrepreneurs. And I could use a lot of different language to say that. I could say, we have a lot of entrepreneurial people at the firm. But instead, I say, we have an army of entrepreneurs, and here's how we create more entrepreneurial people at work, and here's how ProSex behaviors are more entrepreneurial, and here's how it actually benefits the client. You got to close that loop. And that intrigues people. They're like, tell me about the army of entrepreneurs. I totally want to hear about that. I think if I just said ProSex an entrepreneurial place, eh, you know, that's interesting. That's not a book. That's not a speech. That's not a talk. That's not someone I care to get to know. So I do think for many, many things, even outside the financial world, think about why you buy a certain shampoo versus another. Is it really the ingredients? No, it's like the way you feel about you when you associate with that brand. I always said back in the day when we founded the firm and no one believed financial services firms would care about brand, I was like, why? What's the difference? And I think now people understand. I'm really curious to just throw a hypothetical at you. Let's say a long only manager, a long short manager comes in to talk to you. They've got a great background. They've got a five-year track record that's fine. They've got a couple hundred million dollars, maybe it's a billion dollar fund, and they can't quite understand why they're not growing as much as this peer or that peer. Their performance is a little better than theirs. Where do you start that process with them to help them nail the narrative? Well, first, I think we'd audit like everything they're doing to see, is it not just the marketing? A lot of times it's the IR department or the sales. So there's more to it. And as someone who runs a business, I uniquely understand that there could be other business reasons why competitor A is doing better than competitor B, even when competitor B's track record's a little bit better. So it could be something about something else. But however, if the other competitor has a a better brand in the market, more buzz and more recognition. We usually can assume the the one with no recognition and no brand really needs to up its game. So we would start the process with what we'd call discovery, which is just really doing one-on-one interviews with the management team and the founders and also some of their clients and investors and trying to figure out what is the special sauce of this particular firm? Like, Why would anyone be attracted to this firm? Why would it buy its products? 
And then we go through a creative process to say, how do we put that story forward in a unique way? And almost 100% of the time in discovery, we discover something. (laughs) We discover, wow, there's some unique culture here, or wow, the process to the way they get there, or wow, you know, and whatever that distinctive thing is, we try to build some sort of language around that is intriguing, yes, but also educates the world in an instant to what that difference is. And then depending on what the difference is, we recommend how do we bring that to life? Do we bring that to life? How do we bring it to life on the website, on your digital properties, in social media, in news interviews, and in video? So it's really like once you have the story, the unique story, it's amplifying that across all those channels and making it very consistent. And then making sure the internal people are speaking the same language every single time they show up. There's so much power in that. My greatest compliment is when a client says, my God, every one of your people, it's like they say the exact same thing about what they love about the firm. That is so powerful. So just getting everyone on the same page and then getting out there and being experimental. I always tell you, Ted, the first podcast I did with you, I got so many positive reactions, more than any other interview I had done in the whole past year or so. And that was an experiment. I said to you, I remember, I'm like, you sure you want to do this with me? Asset managers aren't really going to care about a podcast about marketing. I was wrong. They totally cared. So you have to experiment and see, you know, what is really hitting my audience and making this work? And then we always say put in the reps. It has to be a very consistent effort. It can't be like you do one of these and one of those and ad hoc. It's got to be a consistent, sophisticated program that is measurable. It's like anything else. If I sent you to the gym for a year and you put in your reps the same way all year, you're like, wow, I changed my body. It's the same thing. You know, things really start to accumulate in the right way. So, Jen, I want to pivot a little bit while we're talking because I know in our first conversation, so much of what came out of it were the insights that you have from running your own business. And on this whole conversation about what's happening in this virtual world, I'd love to chat about what you've learned about corporate culture just from your own company. Okay. Love this topic. So again, we're an army of entrepreneurs, thank God. So what I learned about our culture that even though we're 250 people, we have the same entrepreneurial flair we did before because we had to prove it out this year. So I always say to people, thank God we had that magical culture because all we had to do is tell people like, turn it up because we're in a crisis, right? It's hard to create that overnight and tell people to turn it up. So I learned that the value of culture is that you need to lean on culture in good times, but really, and in bad times too. But One thing that was very useful, there's three words I used all year long about our culture, and it was like the mantra for the firm. And every time someone behaved this way, we kind of celebrated it. And it was grit, hustle, and humanity. Those three words. If we had grit, hustle, and humanity every single day we came to work, we knew we were going to have a good year despite what was going on. And that was true. So I think what we learned about culture is it's so unbelievably valuable, especially in a crisis. But the leader has to really make sure you're over-communicating in a crisis. So this one was a health crisis. So 
people had all kinds of issues. Instead of doing a monthly all hands call, we did a weekly one. Instead of having a monthly partner meeting, we had a partner meeting every day, every day at five o'clock. So it was important to really overemphasize the touch points, the transparency, the communication. If you asked anybody at ProSec down to the intern, like, what got you the Christ? They'd be like, grit, hustle, and humanity. Because we talked about it, we celebrated it. And the humanity part of our culture turned out to be obviously hugely important in this one because humanity is what everybody needed in this crisis and wanted out of the workplace. So another thing we've realized about culture, and it's back to employer-employee trends, is if you're going to win the talent war, especially coming out of this one, you've got to be a firm that has a strong culture and has a dose of humanity. That's what people want. What did you find out about internal communication and what kept your team together and maybe some of the things that happened that risked pulling it apart? We learned, and I don't know, 10 years ago when we started to have more explosive growth, we had to take another floor in a building. That's a death knell. I'll tell any CEO founder, like, once you go to two floors, you got to work so hard on keeping a cohesive culture. Like that physicality is huge. So I was trying to fix it. And I decided to launch a newsletter called the J Lowdown every Sunday. It's sort of like, what's going on in this firm? What did we win? What did we lose? Who are we hiring? It wasn't a newsletter to celebrate birthdays. It was like, what's going on in Jen's office? And it's like, you want to know something about this firm? You read the J Lowdown. It comes out on Sunday. And I have done the J Lowdown every Sunday for like whatever, the 10 years. And what I learned in that experience, in addition to a lot of other things, is it brought everybody together and transparency and communication and making people feel like they know. I always say at ProSec, you can know anything about anything outside of someone else's salary. That's it. Everything. And that feeling that I'm in the know, I'm in the know, I know exactly what's going on was so powerful. So we are ready communicators, but we also have a communication culture. That taught us a lot. And so I knew that the J Lowdown was a great example of constant, repetitive, transparent communication. So in the crisis, again, what we learned was you just need to overdo it. When people are feeling high anxiety, overworked, potentially unplugged, living all over the world, stuck all over the world, that weekly transparent meeting changed the game for everybody. I cannot tell you how many thank you notes I've had from even junior employees like, thank you for sharing the losses, not just the wins. Thank you for telling me exactly where we are as a firm and how we're performing. Because they had friends and roommates that management didn't talk to them at all. And they're sitting in their one-bedroom apartments on Zoom, completely disconnected. What I learned is I always knew it was important. I just think in this one, it's critical. And like I said, I'm predicting there's going to be a lot of talent movement. We already see it based on how firms behaved in this crisis. My dad always told me, you're not judged in good times, you're judged in bad times. And I think that's going to be true. Where have you seen some slippage maybe in some of your clients on internal communication? Well, the slippage is usually very simple, that they're not doing it and they're not doing enough of it and they're not prioritizing it or caring about it enough. Or they just haven't been enlightened on how important this is and how bottom line it is. It's not to be just to be warm and fuzzy, even though I do want a warm and fuzzy place. I personally like that. It's what I want. But I'm more selfish than that. I'm a capitalist. <laughs> I want a high-performing, high-profitability company. And I know if I have high turnover, I'm not in that place. So 
I think you have to understand the bottom line effects of internal communications. Retention. I have a great example. A woman left our firm, I don't know, two months ago, because she got this outsized financial offer. And I said to her, my God, that is really out there. I mean, you should take it. What can I say? I wasn't going to match it. And she called me and she said, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I am so unhappy here. There's no communications. I didn't even get onboarded properly. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so disconnected. She said, money is not everything to me. I really, if you'd take me back, I'd be so happy. And I did. And that's the other thing. I think firms can pay a little less if they behave a little better because people care about it. The New York Times actually just did an awesome article about this. And it was like, dear CEO, you should care for business strategy. Never mind how you feel about it because this is how employees behave now. And I thought it was hilarious. It was a great article. I sent it to a million people because it was true. It's like, this is a bottom line thing, not just a warm and fuzzy. So I think the slippage is based on management, not really understanding that. Now, Jen, I know you always come up with these great little catchphrases, and I'm curious if there are any new ones. Oh, yes. Well, let's see. I told you about grit, hustle, and humanity. My favorite is not new, but if you didn't hear it last time, solve, don't dwell. Huge in a crisis. I think pivot to productivity was our campaign in the beginning of the crisis. So We were doing everything to pivot to productivity, get our clients to pivot to productivity. So that was a big campaign. Interestingly enough, I did four presentations to the team called Making Our Own Luck because it was really about like, you can make your own luck in our business. You can find opportunity. You can launch new product that you never had before. So in the beginning of the crisis, we asked ourselves, where are the vulnerabilities? What are clients worried about? And the first thing was this BD in a virtual world. So we put together a workshop on BD in a virtual world, a whole offering, a video offering, an audio offering, all this stuff to get people to pivot to productivity as quick as possible. And so again, we made our own luck there. So I'll give you an example of that. This is really funny. I was asked by a very, very big private equity firm that you've definitely heard of to present to their entire private equity deal-making team on pivot to productivity. And in fairness to them, it was early in the crisis, but our firm had pivoted to video conferencing like in a day. And they asked me to do this presentation. I assumed it would be on video. It was a phone call. (laughs) The first thing I said to them is like, dear masters of the universe who are used to getting on planes, you are now stuck on the ground and having a phone call to close the deal is not going to get there. So it was like a great way to start. But they were so behind on realizing like the first pivot was just figuring out how do I communicate? Like how do I make connections, right? So anyway, making our own luck was a big one. What are you seeing in terms of trends coming through your business? Yeah, lots of trends. So the private markets are on fire and There are many, many new private market entrants, and they all luckily understand how important it is to build their brands quickly. It's a competitive space, but it's a very hot space. Oh my God, SPAC, SPAC, SPAC. We are launching, I don't know how many SPACs we've launched, bajillions. I'm on the board of a SPAC. So the SPAC thing is massive. So that's happening. In our business, obviously, the special situations work is very busy. Because even though the financial sector, especially asset management and private markets have done pretty well, 
not all portfolios are doing well. So there's a lot of unwinding and all that sort of stuff. So that's a trend. The digital thing, I wish I had three times the digital group I do because it is the shiny toy of every conversation for good reason. You talked about the acceleration of trends. Anyone who had not digitized their model prior had to do it really quick. And that has marketing and the communications as part of that. So CRM and email marketing. And we've even seen a lot of firms adopting Google AdWord campaigns to create paid visibility online. I mean, when did you ever see like a credit shop doing a Google AdWords campaign? But that's happening. So that's really interesting. So again, what I said about back in the day when we found the firm and we were like, I don't really understand why these firms don't care about these things these consumer firms do. It's all becoming, it's like the consumerization of this world. And I'm definitely seeing the majority of leadership of this firm scratching their heads and saying, how are we going to return to better? Return to better is another catchphrase. Not return, you know, I hate when people say, can't wait to go back to the old world. It's like, that's dead. How do we return to better? So smart leadership is thinking about what is our workplace flexibility program going to look like now? And are we going to do those AGMs virtually forever? And what do we keep that's good? How do we keep people off airplanes 50% of the time? It's like, if you think about the old world, the things we used to do were crazy. So yeah. And then of course, I have to say like the unrest in the country is top of mind for everyone. So this is definitely a trend. Diversity, inclusion, race and inequality, ESG, These are the top things on any CEO's radar screen. And I think the struggle for asset managers is like some of that's really new. So I always say it's really hard to be a leader right now. When have you had to deal with a health crisis, an economic crisis, a race and inequality crisis? Now we have unrest in our political system. I mean, it's so thorny. And the expectations on leadership are higher and higher and higher by their employees and other stakeholders. And it's tough. Jen, this is fascinating as always. I can't really let you go without a few closing questions. And we covered most of them. So I'm going to ask you one, and then I'm going to ask you the one about mistakes that I always leave for our premium members. So what's your most important daily habit? Oh, great question. My most important daily habit is sleeping at least seven hours, probably. I really am a huge believer in sleep. Good enough. Jen, this is just amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ted. I'm going to keep you for this one last one that I do for the premium members, which is what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn from it? My biggest mistake when we were very small was hiring someone's husband into the firm. (laughs) That was my biggest mistake, I think. I learned a lot in that. And and unfortunately, I lost the husband and the wife and the wife was the valuable one. (laughs) What did you learn from that? I think I learned to be a little more professional. When you're small, you think you're a family and that's great. And there's a lot of good that comes out of that culturally, but it is a place of business and you do need policies and rules. And I think most entrepreneurs will relate to this. It's like, you look back on your early days and you're like, wow, that firm was run by somebody in their twenties. <laughs> you know. So, and I could talk about so many other mistakes maybe this is a bigger mistake. I co-branded my firm without a lot of thought in the early, early days with a JV partner. And there's nothing more important than your name. 
And you have to be very careful about that decision. And that was probably even a bigger mistake. How'd you correct it? I changed the name of the company. Because when you put sales and business development first, a lot of things look really good on the surface, but you have to look at cultures and where there are matches. And cultural match is the biggest thing if you're doing a joint venture. And then if your name is combined with someone else and the behaviors don't match, it becomes a huge problem. So I literally changed the name of the company. That's why we're Prosec. Jen, this is awesome as always. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.